This is Josh Levent, and you're listening to Humans, a podcast for people who want the world to slow down and become more human. Welcome to episode three. Today, I'm speaking with Gemma Milne. Gemma is a British science writer and speaker on innovation and technology. When I met Gemma, we quickly bonded over our love of science and technology. Despite being a high achiever, or maybe because of it, Gemma struggled to find work that fits her, and I think this makes her very human. The other thing that makes her human is her self-awareness around something we all have, the desire for attention. We also spent time talking about wanting to be a dolphin trainer when she was a child, going to space school in Houston, and working for the advertising giant Ogilvy. I hope you enjoy our diverse and varied conversation. And now I bring you Gemma Milne. Gemma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to, to have you on. I know that you're, you're a writer and uh, that you actually run a podcast as well. Could you tell us um, maybe like your brief bio? Who are you? Oh, my brief bio. Oh, you know, I actually always really struggle with introducing myself. That's my one of my biggest uh, stumbling blocks these days. But um, I am a writer. I write about science and technology. My favorite thing to write about is science startups. Mm -hmm. um, so biotechnology companies, quantum computing companies, energy companies, space companies, anyone that's doing something with a sort of research base mm -hmm. as such, inventing something from scratch. Um, and I write for places like Forbes, the BBC, The Guardian, CNBC, kind of anyone that will take me really. <laughs> and then I, um, so I do that, that's my passion. And then uh, and I get paid a little for that. And then I work with um, a few corporates. I do some branded editorial and all that sort of stuff, I write some reports um, mm -hmm. for companies that need that sort of tech or science expertise. Um, and then I do a little bit of investment advisory for the European Commission and Innovate UK when they're, you know, they're awarding grants to startups, particularly in the deep tech field. Um, I help them assess their companies, look at their business plans, things like that. Okay. Um, and I've just started trying to write a book. So that's kind of my latest project. <laughs> cool. What is the book about? Um, well, it's hopefully if it if we get a publisher for it that is um it will be about uh, hype and idealism in the science and tech field right. so um yeah the the kind of pitfalls of hype and idealism when it comes to development i kind of i've been saying to everyone it's i'm a massive optimist when it comes to tech and science but i think i'm also a realist so mm -hmm. i'm trying to write a book that's not poo-pooing the sort of startup innovation, look at all this awesome stuff world, right. but is kind of going, actually, we need a little bit more critical thinking and we need to, yeah. there's actually dangers of hype and idealism. Yeah. One of the things, you know, investment winters, for instance, is one such example. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I want to write that book. <laughs> so, trying to prevent the next dot-com bust. Well, I'm not sure a book is enough <laughs> to prevent a dot-com bust, but I think for me, actually, it's more about trying to encourage more people to think about the whole system around science and technology and not just look at the innovation itself mm -hmm. so instead of just going oh we've built a rocket so that means we can go to mars and and isn't that great and awesome actually start thinking about oh what does that mean for the economy what does that mean for um, materials what does that mean for energy what is that you know all these sort of other things around it mm -hmm. and trying to get like proper context for um for these big claims that a lot of people are making around you know you see all this stuff about you know ai you're gonna robots are gonna steal all our jobs and a right. few people are actually trying to 
position the argument around the entire system and rather are just looking at the tech or the science. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, I have a lot of questions about that, but I want to start uh, and, and go a little bit chronologically. So can we go back to a time before you were born? What were your parents doing before before you came into the world? Oh, that's a great... I've never been asked that in an interview. Okay. Um, well, my dad's a stonemason mm -hmm. and him and my mom met when they were 12 years old Wow. Um, at, high, uh, at high school mm -hmm. and they dated when they were 12, but then seemingly my dad was a little bit too much. So my mom <laughs> broke up with my dad mm -hmm. and they got back together when they were 15. Mom dated some other guy in between 12 and 15, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> and they got back together when they were 15 and they've been together ever since. Wow. And um, the, as you can tell from my accent, I'm Scottish. Maybe you can't tell, I don't know, but I'm Scottish. They grew up in Scotland, um, obviously. And uh, they started, uh, my dad started the, the uh, stonemasonry company mm -hmm. um, in 1987 and they got married in 1988 and I was born in 91. So company, marriage, child is the, the order they went in. And so my mum, you know, before I was born, she was sort of, running the company, doing all the invoicing, paying the wages for the other employees that they had. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad was out building walls and sculpting things out of sandstone. And I don't know, they were, you know, living that kind of, I guess, I mean, it's funny. I, I don't ever really think about the fact that they were, I don't think of them as entrepreneurs because it feels like a new word, but mm. actually I guess that's what they were. Yeah. Really interesting. Are you the only child? No, I have two younger brothers. Okay, so you were the first to come along. And, I was uh, the first. What's the age difference between you and your brothers? We're all two years apart. Okay. So uh, it's me, then one who's two and years younger, and then one who's four years younger. So very disciplined parents. Well, they <laughs> tell me the last one wasn't planned, actually. So okay. it wasn't deliberate. Actually, I don't know if he knows. Of course he knows that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess so. But it's kind of nice because it means we're all... I mean, when we, were, when we were younger, we we all argued lots. But I think being of a sort of similar age gap means that we now have quite we have we're a very close family. We always have been, and I think a you know having these small age gaps means that as children, there's probably quite a lot of issues between you, um, fighting about lots of stuff. But as adults, it's a lot easier to bond, or at least that's yeah. that's my experience anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what kind of baby were you? Well. I was the biggest, I think. Uh, so I, I think I gave my mum the most pain. Um, and I think I was quite, I think I was the loudest. I cried a lot. There was a story they told me that um, they, they went on holiday. And I think I think it was just me. I don't know if my, my Ross, the next one down, um, was born yet or if it was just me. But uh, we were on holiday, I think it was Portugal or something. And they left me, you know, they wanted to go downstairs to get a drink because, uh, you know, that, back in the time when that was acceptable to leave your child in a hotel mm -hmm. room on their own, but whatevs. And uh, <laughs> they, they put me in the cot and then they were trying to like get out of the room. They had to, because the cot was in the, I guess, the front room by the door, they had to go past me. And I would lie down and go to sleep or I guess I was pretending to go to sleep and the minute they started to try and creep past, I would just stand up in my cot and be staring, my hands like clasping onto the little sides. It's like, no. You're not leaving. <laughs> so I think I was a bit of an attention-seeking baby, probably, is mm -hmm. the best way to describe it. That's always the, the story I get told about me. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. It's, I find it fascinating, the stories that our parents tell us from before we can remember. And um, they, they, they somehow make part of our identity, but actually we, we can't remember those experiences. Oh, what an interesting point. That's so true. It's the same as when you look at photographs. Yeah. I wonder if different generations 
maybe have it differently right because we have well i have video of me as a baby as a child mm -hmm. and photographs of me as a child and sometimes you don't know if the memory is the memory of you looking at the photograph or watching the video right. back or if it's an actual memory right but our parents are not going to have that same experience because they're not going to have as much photographs or video or whatever of them oh my god think about our kids they're going to have so much information about themselves yeah absolutely hmm. i was just having a conversation today about the fallibility of memory and how difficult it is actually to, to remember things accurately there's a lot of research on that that our memories drift over time every time we remember them we change them and um i think definitely videos and photos are a big part of that we we, we think we remember things that actually we've only ever seen in photos mm. and mm. it's very difficult yeah but uh, but for me uh, somehow maybe it also speaks to the ability for us to reshape our story you know if we go through some trauma some difficult experiences or we just want to change our life path or we want to mm. go down a new career or whatever we can always find experiences in our past and if we dig a little bit we can notice that maybe we've misunderstood something that happened to us and we mm. can reinterpret it i mean there's a there's a danger that that we lie to ourselves when we do that but well i think there's maybe it's a conversation around what's positive to lie about and what's negative to lie about because i so like for instance i was very badly bullied in school mm -hmm. and my mum can remember everything you okay. know she can remember me being upset at this or coming home crying or refusing to go to school and blah blah, blah. and i can i can't yeah. really remember any of it yeah. i mean i can remember the sort of the names or some of the experiences, but I can't remember the emotion. I can't remember the hurt. And um, we've, me and my mom spoke about this a lot about, you know, she's like, I think your brain's blocked out a lot of the stuff because, yeah. you know, she was like, I remember how horrible it was. You know, right. I remember the emotion, but right. um, a lot of it isn't, isn't quite there for me anymore. And that's interesting too, because, you know, when, when your mother says she remembers your emotion, actually what she remembers is her emotion. Of and, course, um, of course, absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we've spoke about, you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing that I can't remember this? Is it a scary thing that I can't remember? I mean, for me, I, I suppose I'm glad that I can't remember it because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't really want to relive pain, I guess. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. Maybe I don't think there's a danger in me not remembering those emotions. Yeah, I know what happened and I don't I, I, I won't forget it in the sense of the facts. But yeah. I think it's probably a good thing that I don't remember the the heart i suppose yeah maybe it's a healthy adaptation to yeah maybe i yeah. mean you hear this a lot i mean bullying's bad but of course there's lots of way more traumatic things to happen in people's lives and yeah. um like i mean a, another example actually and it's just made me think of around memory as well was um a thing happened last year where i was sexually assaulted and uh, there was sort of a four-week time that i was essentially just not really functioning very well between after it happening and me kind of getting back on my own two feet and it, to begin with I could remember it very very vividly you know mm. I was kind of reliving it over and over and over again for about a week a week and a half yeah and then after that it disappeared and I actually thought I was going mad I thought I, I thought it hadn't happened I was like have I made this up is this because mm. you know there was no there was no evidence there was no video all that sort of thing and I was beginning to question whether or not I, I'd made it all up in my own head and right. it was so unsettling it was yes. so and, and the only thing that I think kind of I don't know was reassuring was I, w I know in myself that I wouldn't have told all of these I wouldn't have told my boyfriend I wouldn't have told my mom I wouldn't have reported it I wouldn't have done all that if it hadn't happened right but then at the same time I was saying going I my brain is it's not there yeah. I can't you know I 
I can tell the story and I know the narrative, but I can't, I'm not there anymore. I get it. I get it. I, I had a similar experience. I, I think I, I fell off a bed and hit my head and I had like a, a bit of an amnesia uh, and I couldn't remember actually falling off. But, but then the, 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 the even weirder part was I had the exact same experience that a few days later, I couldn't even remember, remember the recovery of it. Mm. And then I was like, did I, did I make that up? Did mm. I even fall? Like, but I have a scar to prove it. Like it was really strange. Well, at least you have the scar. I mean, yeah. it's so unsettling and it kind of, it really makes you realize like your brain is just this, I don't know, big lump of flesh that sometimes gets it wrong. You know, I mean, you see all these documentaries about people misremembering things in crime cases, you know, and saying the wrong things back in court and all this sort of thing. And something like that happens and you're like, you know, not to be, is any of this real? You know, (laughs) it kind of really kind of messes with you, you know? Well, yeah, I I think it should just give us humility in the way that we treat memory, that Mm. it is very fallible. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe for, for, maybe not just for, for ill, for good as well. Mm. And Mm. But uh, if we want to use it for something like in courtrooms, I think we have to be really careful that we... But then you also have to not think about it too much because then it kind of, you lose a little bit of hope, <laughs> I think, about about the world. You know, I think you can start worrying a little bit too much about it or, or kind of, we have, something has to be real, right? You have to have right. something to peg our well, sort of... I, I think that, you know, with the kind of, you know, we're talking into microphones right now and... Uh, my smartphone is on the table we have the technology today to record and Mm. really capture almost everything Mm. digitally and we we know more or less that this is accurate that when we replay that it is how it was and that if it conflicts with our memory then our memory is wrong Mm. and i think that should should be a good thing and maybe this is the the point where at some point we will become cyborgs and we Mm. maybe attach memory uh, aids to ourselves that record independently and allow us to actually calibrate our memory against some more accurate representation of the past kind of like that black mirror episode i don't know if you saw it i haven't seen it you haven't seen it there's i'll not give it away but there's a good one in the newest series about um memory recording um and uh specifically to do with crime Okay, I don't think I've seen that, yeah. You should watch it, it's real good. And I was also <laughs> thinking about the Malcolm Gladwell episode on one of the, um, right. rationally speaking, um, I think it's over two episodes and it's all about memory and how fallible it is. He's talking about... A journalist who made up a story about getting shot at, is that the one? Yes, that's one. And he also talks about 9-11 and asking, he asks right. a lot of people about where where they were and they all have these really vivid memories, but actually right. a lot of them are incorrect. And right. yeah. Really fascinating. I, that's a, on revisionist history. Uh, that's right and um, yeah very interesting episodes um <laughs> but coming back to 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 you and your life um <laughs> i want to go back to your childhood you were so you remember being a difficult or a, a demanding child <laughs> um <laughs> what is your first uh <laughs> having spoken about memory i'm not hesitant to use the word true memory or your first mm. real memory oh, gosh. Um, but what do you really remember i don't, you know i'm not entirely I've thought about this before and I'm not entirely sure what my first true memory is because I don't know if it is yeah. something I've seen in a photograph or not. I mean, it, I feel like it's it's being in my gran's house. And again, I think this is an... Actually, no, I know it's a memory because it's an emotion. I threw my teddy. I remember throwing my teddy mm-hmm. and then being really upset about the teddy being not next to me. 
I remember that. Okay. I, I don't know. I, I actually don't know what age I was, but I'm pretty sure we were living in my grand's house before we moved out to the new house. So that would have been 1994. So I would have been three, maybe. Wow. That's a pretty early memory. Or maybe maybe I was four. I'm yeah. not sure. Three or four. But Or I could be completely wrong and I, we were just there for a sleepover and it was a couple of years later. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I remember... I was I was annoyed. I was really annoyed about something. So I threw the teddy because I was angry. And then I was immediately upset about the fact that I'd thrown the teddy. <laughs> and I remember that emotional switch. Very yeah. interesting. Very fascinating. You were a very mature child, it seems. No, I was <laughs> I was a demanding, clearly. <laughs> throwing well, teddies about, you know. Well, I, I say mature because you... Uh, see, saw immediately the consequences of your actions. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> regret. Immediate yeah. regret. Which I think is really healthy if you regret something really quickly. That's, yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I'm still wedded to that, Teddy. I still have it. So <laughs> I think it's also the emotional attachment to the to the thing as well. Okay, interesting. Do you remember your time in kindergarten? Hmm. We call it playgroup in the UK. Okay. Um. Do I remember playgroup? I remember, and again, see, I don't know if it's a memory or this is because <laughs> my mum's told me this story because mm -hmm. she loves to tell the story. Yeah. But I, the first day of playgroup, so we'd moved to this new village and it's quite a small village. My parents still live there. And I guess everyone knew everyone, mm -hmm. even the kids, the tiny kids. Mm -hmm. um, but I went to playgroup and I was the new kid, even mm -hmm. though you're only like four or five. I guess you're four. Yeah. And <laughs> my mum went over and said hello to this woman called Hazel, who's one of her best friends still. Yeah. Um, and she has a daughter called Amy, who's the same age as me. Mm -hmm. And so mum had like gone over, you know, to make me a friend, to make her a friend. <laughs> yeah. And I think I was a bit much for Amy. So Amy basically spent the whole time avoiding me. And I do remember, well, I think I remember her crying at me. And I, I think I was just confused. I think I wanted to just play. And mm. she was just like, who is this weird? I, I've like, I had big curly ginger hair when I was a child. So mm. I probably looked a bit scary. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was that. That's probably all I can remember from playgroup. When I think about going into primary school, I remember being moved seats once and that really upset me and I didn't know why we had to move seats. Um, <laughs> and I remember having to always write the date. That was the first thing we did every day and it was I remember writing 1996. <laughs> but I was I was quite fast at writing. I wrote from quite young. I was writing okay. and reading from a young age. So I guess that would make sense. I would remember writing the date over and over. And mm. I remember... But it was. It doesn't sound like it's something that you enjoyed doing. Writing, writing the, the date? Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I don't... I don't necessarily have an emotion around it. I just remember seeing it on the blackboard. I remember seeing the teacher writing the, you know, 1996 and we all had to, to copy. I remember that. Yeah. And I remember once at, at Christmas in prime, I would be primary one. So that's in, in Scotland, that's age five. And uh, you all give each other Christmas cards and you had to mm. write one to every person in your class. Wow. And I had... I remember because our uh, I was in a small village and our classes were composite classes, so it was like primary one, two. So there's people our age and then the year above, all in the one classroom. Okay. And I had to, I remember giving out all of my Christmas cards, and then I realised I didn't have one for someone. I'd forgotten one and oh, had no. to run to the back. My mum had given me extra ones. I'm assuming she knew I'd forgotten someone. I don't know, or maybe she'd forgotten someone. I guess at your five, you don't write your own Christmas cards. <laughs> but I remember going to the back and having to write to Grant, "Merry Christmas, Gemma," because I'd forgotten. Him. Mm -hmm. And then I went and gave him his his card. I could I must have been five because it was primary one too. I yeah. remember I remember the classroom really vividly. Yeah, do I guess that's all I can remember from that age. Do you still write a lot of cards? No. It's interesting. I write to my gran. 
Okay. Um, Is that because she prefers to get something in written, written well, for? Well, it was... I. Me and my family have this thing about presents, like birthday presents and Christmas presents. You're always trying to one-up each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we love giving really emotional presents. Like we always make stuff for each other or, yeah. or like, I don't know, create something. Anyway, the one for my gran is always kind of hard and grandparents because, I don't know, I guess those are harder presents to give. You don't always know what to give them. Yeah. And one year I was like, oh, I feel like I've given gran some kind of mediocre presents. You know, I've given her a lot of books. I've given her, you know, and uh, for the last few years. So I decided um, to give her a writing paper and, and envelopes and I gave her a, a wad of stamps and, you know, I wrote one of the letters saying we're going to be pen pals from now on because I'm down in London and she's in Scotland and mm -hmm. she can't use, you know, we've tried to give her an iPad and a phone and none, she just can't use any of it and she's she's now got Alzheimer's so there's, there's, no, there's no hope of her learning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and she's, uh, but yeah, so we started writing to one another and it's really lovely because she's not very emotional, my gran, or at least she doesn't show it, but she does okay. when she, well, it's it's really weird. I feel like I write like a child. I'm a writer for a living, but when I write yeah. a letter, you know, I, today I did this, you know, I, right. and she writes like that too. You know, it's quite factual, but then every now and again, she'll write something that's but quite... Do you, do you write letters or postcards? Letters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, letters. You, you'd think that in a letter, you'd be able to express yourself more. Because I know in a, in a postcard, I always feel like there's not enough space. Oh, there's not enough space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you can do a postcard. No, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like I'm trying to, but sometimes mm. I don't feel like it really flows. And I don't know whether it's right. because it's to my gran and we don't have that kind of very close kind of sharing our feelings kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. But you know, like I got really emotional because she had wrote something like, oh, I can't remember, something about like, I seem to be forgetting a lot these days, okay. which is not that kind of bigger thing to say, but I had in my head that, you know, because she doesn't say things like that very often, it was so emotional. And you know, I wrote back, I mean, I, I'm very open with my family and I'm very open with my friends, but I actually felt I was struggling to kind of Mm. write something of meaning but then right. maybe that's just because i knew that grand probably wouldn't react in the same way as others i don't know but yeah, yeah. i write her letters well it's, i think it's always difficult to write something of meaning to, to someone who's going through a difficult experience and you sort mm. of mm -hmm. wonder if you, you can actually relate because you, you don't have that experience and yeah no i definitely can't relate to what's going on with my grand right now no for sure and it's it's also hard but i mean you probably have this the same like when your life is quite full you know, we're sitting here in China, you know, like mm -hmm. we travel with work and we do all these incredible things. And my gran is like in Scotland, has been her whole life, was a nurse, has had a family. She's old mm -hmm. now. A lot of her friends have passed away. Like she's not got so much going on. So sometimes yeah. it's kind of, I guess, I mean, she thrives off the stories of what's going on with us. So mm -hmm. whenever I write, I, I give her a list of all the places I'm going and the dates that I'm going because I know she'll write it in her diary. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes it's quite hard to, I don't know. It do, it's not bragging. It just feels like, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to kind of not feel like you're over talking and making them feel bad, you know? Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting problem. <laughs> yeah. I have that a lot when I go home. Yeah. But I think it's nice. I, um, to, to, to kind of, I think you're allowed to brag with your family. You're allowed to say, here's all the cool things I'm up to because yeah. they, they'll always feel happy for you. That's true. But I think, recently i think i've had slight things around particularly with maybe more extended family like grandparents or cousins or that it maybe feels 
too, like too much bragging. Like I don't know, I've always been like an overachiever, and like every time we sat around Christmas, it was all bizarre. What prize has Gemma won, or what school competition has she done, or what she learned on the piano this year, or mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, again, center attention. Like mm-hmm. you know, I I, I, I obviously thrive off that. <laughs> your brother's not like that. Um, no, I mean, well, we're all pretty kind of loud. I mean, Gordon, the youngest, he sings. He's a brilliant singer. Okay. And and Ross, he's always up to some kind of scheme. He's always got like a poem he's written or he, he like comes out with some surprise or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So we always, our family are quite expressive like that. But I think because I was always the one sort of, you know, I was academically achieving a lot, you know, kind of. I guess it was always I mean, there's always stuff going on with all three of us, but I guess maybe I felt I was taking too much of the attention. Mm-hmm. And I think now that I'm older, I'm probably way more aware of it than I was when I was a kid. Right. As um, a kid, you you thrive on it. You just you just yeah, love, well, you don't, love it. You're just like yeah, that is what's happening with me. <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> Whereas now it's and also you know a lot of my extended family are they're they're living their lives doing their thing and and that's great. But I mean they're not going to understand what's going on with me and. Sure. And sometimes I do feel like I'm, I'm not bragging. It feels, it's, I find it hard to have conversations sometimes about what I'm really doing. Yeah. They can relate to travel. I can tell them, oh, I've traveled here and I went here and here's some photos or whatever. But in terms of like my work or like even the types of people I'm hanging out with or the communities I'm in. Yeah. I, I think it's just maybe it feels too separate sometimes. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's hard. I mean, that's one of the most most difficult things to bring across the kinds of people that you that you meet and the. the yeah, I think also there's a bit of. I mean, I don't know if this is a Scottish thing or if it's a kind of working class, middle class thing. Like the idea of snobby being snobby mm-hmm. is a really negative thing. Right. And in, in my family, in my community, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I went to St Andrews University, which in. Uh, in Scotland is known as a very posh university. And I had, uh, you know, I was the only one in my year at school who went to St Andrews and I had a lot of people say to me, oh, you're going to the posh uni, why are you going there? All the all the private school people go there, why are you going there? All the English right. people go there, la, la, la. Right. And, you know, I think I'm I can, I'm conscious about not coming across as, in inverted commas, one of them, even though it's silly, to, you know, it doesn't matter and I'm not in inverted commas, one of them, I'm just me. <laughs> but um, I do sometimes worry about that. I mean, like one perfect example was I was home um, a couple of months ago and my boyfriend and I got a cleaner. It's like 20 pounds a month to clean our house, which in my mind wow. is totally worth it right. um, because I hate cleaning. And I was just chatting away and I, I, we were telling a story and I said something like, I, ca- I couldn't leave the house because the cleaner was coming. Yeah. And oh my God, my brother, you got a cleaner. Why are you paying for a cleaner? What's that about? And you, my mum was like trying to be the mediator. She's like, if Gemma wants to pay for a cleaner, she, Gemma's very busy in London. You know, <laughs> I really felt for, I mean, she, I know exactly, she, she gets it. Like she knows what I'm up to, but like, you know, and they're, they're kind of half joking, you know, but, and as my, you know, my family are not stingy, but at the same time, it's just, I don't know. Kind it's of, a different world. It's, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I spoke about this with my mum loads and, but um, it's sometimes just a little bit hard to kind of and like you're sitting around the, the kind of at Christmas and the things you're talking about and the kind of discussions. And sometimes it's just it's kind of hard to live a life where you're doing all these incredible things and meeting all these people. And you're, you kind of want to tell 
them everything. Oh my God, I met this person today and they do this and they do that. And yeah. I traveled here and I did this and I did that and did that. But actually the conversation is about, oh, so-and-so's getting married or yeah. we saw this film. Did you like that film or whatever? And there's nothing wrong with those conversations. And I feel snobby even saying this, but you kind of feel out of it. Yeah. You feel like, oh my God, I am, I'm an, I'm the alien. I'm right. the other, right. I'm the weirdo here. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to sometimes not be a little bit resentful of that, hmm. of that feeling, not of the situation of that kind of. Otherness, uh, alienation. Yeah. And yeah. kind of like, I'm doing so well. Why, why doesn't everyone want to talk about my trip to China? <laughs> why is everyone not asking me about the article I just wrote? Or why are we talking about my little brother's wedding? It's over a year away, you know, like for crying out loud. But, you know, it's, and at the time you can, and then later on you're like, for God's sake, Joe, pull your, pull yourself together but yeah. it's i think i spoke to a lot of people who have lead similar lives to us and i think it, it seems like quite a common feeling especially if you come from a place that is your your parents haven't had a similar life to yeah. you yeah yeah with all the with all the traveling and all the just just the kind of the even just the what you're exposed to yeah the kinds of people the kinds of ideas the yeah i, I don't know i mean it, it, it's this you might call it highbrow culture, mm, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing this exposure to 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 you know quote unquote yes, yes. highbrow culture. Yes, and of course, highbrow is a pejorative. Like it's 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 pretentious. Yes, um, it's almost negative in some sense. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and 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 what is it about that? Because actually, it's this kind of anti-intellectualism that there's in society that we feel like mm. if people are trying or if people sound too intelligent or are taking you know world politics mm. or global economics too seriously then they are pretending to be more influential or mm. something in the world than they really are so i think there's a few parts to this i guess sort of the f to kind of wrap up the point of my family because i think there's a bigger bigger point in this they're they're certainly not anti-intellectual. I mean, I learned all my maths from my dad, yeah. and my mom. You know, she studied biology, and now I'm fascinated by biology. She's also the one that I probably got a lot of my creative writing skill from, and all that she writes poems. Yeah. Um, she's a counselor, and you know, so they're they're very intelligent people. It's certainly not an anti-intellectualism thing. Um, and we, I mean, as a family, we speak about politics and so on and so forth. Right. I think it's more. Uh, it's a wealth thing. I think it's to do with money, not to do with intellect. Interesting. It's. I think it's more to do with, like, my family, and I think Scottish people in general have, like, a real sense of fairness. If something is unfair, mm -hmm. it's, like, not okay. And you have this kind of burning knot in your stomach when something's not fair. Right. And I know that my, my whole family kind of experienced this kind of, like, oh, that's not fair. That's why do they get to do that? That's not, that's, you haven't earned that, or you right. haven't, or that person's getting treated badly, or that's, you know, all these sorts of things. And which, so is, I, which is hard because the world isn't that fair. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think, so I think probably I would say maybe it's to do with wealth. I'm not sure. I, but they're not resentful at all. They're very proud. It's just coming from me. I think it's me worrying that I'm I'm becoming a person that maybe I don't like. Mm. I don't know. But parking that, going back to this thing that you said about anti-intellectualism anti and this kind of people that are thinking big things and, and they're not real and, they're, and they are pretentious. Or I think there's two parts to that. I think some people 
not maybe not deliberately but they haven't been exposed to big ideas or the or the ability to do something big or the the, the kind of the world is your oyster mentality right i was told yeah. that from a really young age and i genuinely believe it and i'm i'm hugely naively optimistic and all these sorts of things yeah. but not everyone's like that right so mm-hmm. i think that's one side but then i think the other side is that there are a lot of people that are, talk bullshit and yeah. and saying i want to change the world or i want to I don't know, disrupt this industry or do this, that right. and the other. And most of it, they're, they're not, a lot of people are talkers and not doers. Yeah. And I think that breeds a sort of, it kind of tars everyone with the same brush. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to find a more intellectual way of saying, I want to change the world for someone to believe you. You can't right. just say, I want to change your world because folk are like, yeah, whatever, that's just words. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I find myself with that same kind of cynicism, or mm-hmm. I guess you could just call it um, skepticism. Yeah. Um, that I, I don't necessarily. Well, yeah. No, I think in general, I don't pe- believe people immediately when they say something no. grandiose like that. Until, oh, I definitely don't. I yeah. definitely don't. Yeah. My immediate feeling is always prove it. Like, or what have you done? Yeah. What have you? And it's kind of unfair, really, because especially when it's young people, you know, mm. they've not had time yet. Um, what's wrong with? planning or, or dreaming or believing right but um yeah i definitely have that skepticism or that kind of it, i kind of retract a little bit but i also think culturally too and this is something i've noticed here in in china at this conference is i think some cultures the way of talking about this stuff is to be quite high level and kind of without detail and kind of mm-hmm. you know saying things like you know i'm on a mission to uh, change a world of child education and i'm doing this through social entrepreneurial means or something and that's maybe enough in right. that country or maybe if it's english is not the first language and maybe that's how they've learned their pitch or something yeah whereas with me my immediate thing is like yeah okay everyone wants to do that how you do <laughs> like yeah obviously we all want to change the world of education and we all want to do social entrepreneurship okay what ifs like yeah. how 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 so i i, I don't know is i think it's i mean i guess part of my job like looking at startups is like how do you separate the wheat from the chaff a lot of the time and how do you how do you not judge people too quickly and how do you not you know someone can have an idea i mean this is the thing about wanting to write about startups you want to write about them before they get big but how do you know that they're going to get big and how do you trust that they're not i don't want to say a scam but you know kind of no i mean i think that's a legitimate fear now with theranos and oh my god yeah exactly (laughs) well particularly in science particularly in science actually there's a company i interviewed recently who does blood testing kits oh wow like um, and you know i say the sort of elephant in the room was sort of 10 minutes into and i said right can we just talk about theranos like this is we need to and he, he was honest and he's like yeah i mean that is what we're doing this you can do it you're the signs they just didn't you know you can actually do it and it was that way i was in a way you know i sort of believed him up to that point and then i was like oh, i don't know this and i went and checked and he they are very good actually um but it does but it's, it's very it's very difficult right because like yeah. theranos really tricked a lot of people i mean incredible numbers of people yeah but they tricked people who didn't have expertise in the area so yeah. you know you could argue that if you looked at the list of investors and right. if you none looked of them at the, were yeah none of them were biotech experts. investors right no and uh, you know the people i think that they they tricked the most were the the corporates the corporate innovation leads mm-hmm. who kind of said officially that they would run a trial with them and yeah. it, and then those trials either didn't happen or they were faked or well, they they did a lot that. of thinning of blood and exactly exactly shit. but like they should have been 
they you know it's kind of i think those were actually the ones who were tricked as such but then yeah. you know there was charm and so on and so forth that did it yeah. but um yeah i mean if you that was always i mean i followed the story when it was kind of being reported a few years ago and i remember thinking i wasn't even really doing my job at the moment now i was i was in a different job and i remember thinking like but there's no science investors like they're, right. they're all tech investors i don't understand yeah, yeah. um I think that's where the the rumor sort of started. Actually, people in Silicon Valley. I remember even years and years ago, people there was a rumor like, like no experts are investing in this. Like, what's yeah. going on? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This is really suspicious. Yeah, but then I mean, it's it's difficult because you've got a lot of. It's a very difficult one because you. I mean, you look at people, companies like Magic Leap, right? Who are doing everything in stealth? They've only sure. just well, they've just released their I think it's developer edition or whatever right. of their headset now, and they've they, been in stealth for years. For, yeah, for years. How, do you know how many years? Like three or four years. Oh, I don't know how long. I, in I remember because I was in Silicon Valley in 2015, and I think then I think the news came out that they got 900 million of funding from yeah, that Google sounds or something. right. That sounds about right. I mean, it's crazy, crazy money this company has. Yeah, crazy money. Really. And, and and because they didn't really, I mean, we knew they were doing something with AR glasses, but that was kind of it. And when you looked to the investors, you didn't actually know if. But that was smart know. money. That was people like Google and so on who who can actually verify that this is. But then, re is it? Yeah, you uh, know, you'd, is you'd, it? You'd, you'd hope so. Yeah. There's a thing like you can't really know when a company's in stealth. You yeah. can't really know. Not truly. That's one of the reasons why I actually trust this blood testing company because they published everything openly. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, we're deviating from my from sorry, my script. No, sorry, it's such an interesting <laughs> conversation. Like, I need to start another podcast about about uh, technology and <laughs> the investment base and startups. I think actually something I'm I'm curious about. I ask this uh, uh, um, a lot of guests is was there some favorite subject that you had at school, like early on in primary school? That I was good at. Yeah, or, or that, maths, or that you just enjoyed. Maths, always yeah. maths. Well, I mean, I mean, I liked everything. Actually, yeah. is the answer. Yeah. Um, I kind of well, in primary school, I liked everything. Yeah, you know, there was. I maybe didn't love English as much, ironically, yeah. considering what I do for a living. I, I hated English in high school. Couldn't yeah. stand it. But I was always good with numbers. I was all. I always loved science, music, art, kind of anything really. History. I loved history in school. Mm. But I always kind of, they always kind of came back to the maths, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. So even through high school, you enjoyed. Oh that? yeah. That's what I studied at uni, maths. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So it, it was all the way through. And the thing is, is I both like, I, so I love the fact that it's right or wrong. That's mm -hmm. that's probably the main reason I like it. There's an answer. Right. Well, not I did pure maths at uni and a lot of that, there's not an answer. But anyway, um, I like the fact that there's an answer. But then I have this real emotional tie to it because my dad taught me a lot of my maths. Mm -hmm. And my granddad, I, whenever I went around to my, grand, uh, my grandma and granddad's house, my granddad used to like teach me trigonometry. He just, he's fascinated by maths. He loves patterns. He's a stonemason as well. And um, you have to have quite good maths if you're stonemason. And, um, you know, he, ta he taught me trigonometry at a really young age. And I remember going into high school to do this session on, you know, you got your... Um, Pythagorean, uh, you know, your triangle and your, your hip and your age and your, you know, your, mm -hmm. um, the other one that I can't remember, ob, ob, or whatever it is. And, um, I remember when they were, when he was going over at the teacher and he was saying, this is the hypotenuse and this is the adjacent and this mm -hmm. is the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember saying, oh, is that what it stands for? Mm -hmm. And he was like, and he didn't teach us the, you know, the hip, the op and the adge first. He taught us the full word. Right. And he was like, does what stand for? And I was like, hip, op, adge. And he was like, why do you know that? And I was <laughs> like, my granddad taught me it. 
ages ago. <laughs> so that, but I didn't know what any of this stuff was, but he just used to teach me it all the time. I've got like little notebooks. And so there's a lot of like, I guess, family stuff wrapped up in maths, mm. as well as my love of it, as well as the wonder. I have so much wonder when it comes to maths. See, when things are just right, oh my God, mm. the feeling you get. They did this study where they had like mathematicians looking at equations and they had artists looking at like the best work of art, Picasso and like Da Vinci and all that jazz. And it was like the same parts of the brain were firing. And it is, I mean, like when I see like Euler's theorem, I'm just like in awe, like Mm. the proof of it as well. It's just so perfect. It like makes no sense, but it makes sense. It's just, ah, see when stuff just fits. You're like, how how did the world get like this? Like... It's, it's not possible. There can't be a God. It's too perfect. Like, it just doesn't... And math is at the root of, of absolutely everything. And, uh, yeah, I used, to, I used to read a lot of books about maths and I watched every documentary I could find. And there was actually a program called Numbers On when I was in my final years of high school and it was about solving crime using maths. Right. I was addicted to that program. I, th- I think I've seen one episode. Yeah. Um, it was, actually was a mathematician, the, right, who came in to work with some crime police, fighting. Yeah, the police, and they, and they used to kind of, I don't know, work out the solution using maths and, and yeah. probability and data. And I remember, actually, on one of the episodes, he does that. You know, they do that thing in, like, films, and they have the mathematician stand at the at the blackboard, and, and, or, the, yeah. and the music mm-hmm. kind of comes on, and they, like, solve, and they're, like, they're, they're, their brow kind of furrows, and they're, mm-hmm. you know, and they get to the solution. It's been hours, and, you know, and then they get to it, and, they, and then they put the, the, the chalk down, and they kind of step back and look at the blackboard, and it's mm-hmm. like this. Full of equations. Yes. Yeah. And I remember seeing that and being like, I want to be that person. I'm studying <laughs> maths. <laughs> and that's kind of, I remember be that being that I'm going to go study maths at university because of like one of those scenes. Wow. <laughs> yes, it was kind of mental really when you think about it. But, um, <laughs> but no, I'm still very fascinated by it. Kind of, I lost it when I, I didn't love it this much when I was at uni, unfortunately. So I didn't really lean into it too much when I was there. But the minute I left mm. and um, before I got there and now, I still have that kind of, I don't know, it's always my life's mission to get more people to be have so much wonder and math as I do when you decided to go and study maths at university what did you think you would do for a career i didn't i mean i i didn't know i never knew i mean I, when i was doing my cambridge interview i said i wanted to be an astronaut which i think was mainly true um it was true at the time but i mean i thought i would do a phd i thought i would be a researcher i thought i'd be that person at the blackboard and sums but the, yeah. you know very very quickly into university i knew that i wasn't going to do that i didn't like it enough wow um did you not have any interesting or inspiring professors no, at university? No, unfortunately not. That's a shame. And I didn't go often enough. See, part of the problem is the way, well, not to blame the Scottish education system because I actually think it's one of the best systems in the world, but we have, um, uh, in high school, we do hires as opposed to A-levels in England or the IB in, in, in the rest of Europe. And uh, you do hires in your penultimate year. And then in your final year, you can either redo hires that you failed, you can do advanced hires if you're super intelligent, um, or you can kind of, funny about and <laughs> not really do very much mm-hmm. um so i did advanced hires um and i did maths and chem- chemistry and physics so when i went to university if you had done the advanced hire in this in the topic that you were studying you could skip first year wow. um okay. or you could do the first year subjects and basically not go to class right um and i i chose the latter but the first semester was essentially exactly the same as my advanced hire math so i just didn't go to class um, okay. and then it didn't kind of change from there <laughs> i found it oh, no. i discovered alcohol and going out and you know not being a nerd and all that sort of thing and uh 
yeah, I didn't quite get the drive back for a long time. Um, okay. So it was my fault just as much as not having the... Do you ever regret that? that oh, you... yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Mm. I cried on graduation day. I got a 2-1 from university and I still regret not going and getting that first. I know I was more than capable of doing it. But I, I yeah. And, I, you know, I remember, um, you know, my mum came over to me at one point uh, just after graduation. We'd done the whole ceremony. We were in the little garden having, you know, whatever, Prosecco or whatever. And I remember she came over to me and I, was, I got upset. And she knew exactly. She knew exactly why I was upset. She just got it. She was like, yeah. I get, you know, you're, you're regretting, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I, I'm mm -hmm. so annoyed at myself for wasting this or, you know, I had, a, I had a job lined up and all this sort of thing and I had a good future ahead of me. It was nothing like that. I think it was just the kind of, I didn't work as, to the level I should have and I lost my passion for something that I love and I let myself kind of, I don't know, I want to say I let myself go because you know, I, I worked three jobs at uni and I worked really hard on that jazz, but mm. I guess... Um, you didn't make the most of the experience. No, I didn't the make opportunity. the opportunity. No, definitely not. And even in uni as a whole, I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, at school I was, you know, as head girl and I was doing all these societies and sports, so much sport. Mm. Um, at uni, I didn't really do any of that. I got a job in the hotel and a few other jobs I did and then internships and stuff. And I worked really hard at that stuff. But everything else kind of, I didn't really engage that much That's interesting yeah do you think you kind of maybe out, uh, overdid it in high school and then felt like it was time to kind of pull back a little bit in university mm. that might be the narrative i gave myself to kind of make it okay i yeah. don't know i mean my mom my mom says she thinks i lost it more in my final year of high school and oh, i think okay. a lot of that's probably to do with the fact that i did really really well in my penultimate year which is the, the most important year in terms of going to university mm -hmm. in uh, in scotland because that's the grades they use to decide whether or not you get a place right so in scotland you get unconditional offers as opposed to conditional offers because you've already got your grades when you apply right so uh, you know i did i did really well that year i you know got sort of 90 percent and above in all subjects and all that jazz got into uni but i didn't i didn't get into the uni that i wanted to i didn't get into cambridge i got to interview stage and i got rejected and there's a few other things that kind of i guess happened that year that were rejection based maybe i don't know mm. not to over over psychoanalyze myself but i guess mm. i think probably a lot of it was to do with the fact that i didn't have to work yeah you know like i i kind of was i had what i needed and yeah. so I kind of took my foot off the gas and I don't know what it was that changed it. I really don't. I've thought about this a lot. Like why for those five years, you know, the, the final year of high school and the four years of, of uni, for those five years, why, why was I sort of not fully myself? Mm. Which is kind of how it always felt. I always felt like I wasn't fully myself. I was, I was myself in my summers because I was interning and mm. I was working. But I think I, I think if I'm not really pushing myself, I don't feel my I don't feel like I'm if I'm not challenged and I'm not kind of like having to really <laughs> it sounds so lame, but you know having to really achieve my potential, I feel mm. like I'm not myself. I feel yeah. like I kind of become this sort of lazy, like complacent person. Yeah, I slept loads at uni. <laughs> so how did you redeem yourself? When I was working. It was just when I was working. When I did, when I, I did internships every summer, uh, I did one where I was a chef over in the US for a summer. Uh, I did one uh, where I was doing door-to-door -door sales down in London. That mm -hmm. was that was an experience. Wow. Um, it was for a charity, not for Hoover's. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I did one. I was in investment banking for my my penultimate um, in between my third and fourth year, 
and those ones i mean those were all really hard and really testing and yeah. like so challenging in their own ways um and then i got a job immediately out of uni down in london so i graduated on the friday and started working the monday wow. <laughs> literally got the train from my uni town all the way to london it was crazy but anyway so the minute i was kind of working it was fine mm-hmm. but I, I don't know maybe it's just when i don't feel like i don't know if it's i don't think it's structure because i'm a freelancer now and i'm fine without structure but um yeah i'm not sure yeah I don't think we need to have an answer for all these questions. <laughs> hey, my therapist yeah. asks me all the time. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I, I can't tell you. She says we have an exercise next time I go to try and unlock what is my what was my turning point in life or something. But hey, ho, I don't know what that entails. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be able to tell you in a couple of weeks time. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. You, you mentioned that you at some point wanted to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Was there something else that you wanted to be as a child? Like even just something ridiculous i want to be a dolphin trainer for a while i want to train dolphins yeah i was obsessed with dolphins for a long time what what age was that oh i don't know primary school probably end of primary school mm-hmm. maybe because i used to get dolphins for like every birthday like a dolphin <laughs> necklace or I, i don't know a dolphin picture yeah i was really obsessed with dolphins for a while and we went i remember we went so no i must be younger because i was nine we went to uh florida or california somewhere i know those are totally different places but anyway <laughs> somewhere in the states and we went we did dolphin training like you know you can go and hold a dolphin oh, really? you okay. know and i was like in my element and i think i was about nine or ten maybe yeah. around then uh, as a picture of me like oh we're on a podcast no one can see that anyway, <laughs> i was i was showing i was showing you my um elated feeling of holding a dolphin anyway so yeah i wanted to be a dolphin trainer for a little while When I was really young, I remember wanting to be one of those people that are on the open top buses doing the history tours. Uh-huh. You know, when you go around towns, they tell you all the facts. Yeah. I was like, I want to be a history person okay. that like knows facts about cities. Wow. I, d- I did genuinely want to be an astronaut and I was like, I guess I would have been 17 then. So it wasn't too mental. Uh, yeah. um, I was really into space. I went to like space school in Houston um, wow. when I was like, I guess I was 17. Maybe you could still be an astronaut. Well, no, I see I can't Why because because I have um, a perforated eardrum and uh, I'm, it's unlikely that I can get a graft to heal it. Niche, but uh, that's probably one. Of, and also there's a whole lot of issues around like, um, you know, being British, we don't have that many astronauts. Yeah. Um, so you'd probably have to go to the States and then you have to be a, to become a citizen. You have to be there for like seven years, although nowadays, who knows, but seven seven years and then apply for citizenship and then apply for nasa and then you have to be you know an an astronaut with with nasa for a long time before you get to space yeah or you could be a pilot but you have to have like loads of of hours of flying like way more than just getting your license Um, or you have to be uh, a member of the armed forces which i don't want to be so have you you read um, mike messamino's um i haven't autobiography it's really great it's lovely it's I, i have it i just haven't read it yet oh it's fantastic Oh. Yeah, I, I, I inhale these sorts of things. I went and saw Chris Hadfield do a talk when he was in London, mm-hmm. the Canadian astronaut, and it was the most stunning. He has such a gift for explaining feelings. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was able to, I was literally crying. He just explained how it felt to take off. That was it. But he he took and the, the, the production of the place was amazing. They turned all the lights down and they yeah. did a countdown. And it was beautiful. But anyway, wow. And he has such a gift. And then at the end, he got his guitar out and he sang Grand Control to Major Tom as well. Oh. I mean, of course, I was like weeping. But um, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of it was tied. To, I mean, space school was like a really transformative experience for me. So probably a lot of it was tied to that, to be what, honest. What age was that? 
uh, well, I, I would have applied when I was 16 and I or 15, and I went when I was 17. Okay, so... Yeah, it was a long process, just the application. Before it was the... Before uni. Yeah, so it was your last year at high school or the year before? Yes, it was my last year of high school. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm very curious about the experience. What, what is it like? Is, is that like a, well, a summer program? You yeah, yeah. It was, it was just like a, it was um, the Scottish government, Careers Scotland, ran this scheme called Space School. And it was basically for students um, who had high potential in STEM um, mm-hmm. to, you know, encourage them and give them an experience that hopefully would mean that they go into STEM, which is it worked for me and it has actually worked for most of us on that program. I still keep up with people. But anyway, cool. um, so, yeah, they took 26 people. Uh, twice a year uh, and you had to go through this big application process where you basically had to do a whole load of maths and physics questions you had to write essays about you know write an essay about microgravity and the effects on the human body you had to like design a tool for the for the um, ISS at the International Space Station and uh, you had to design what would a, co- a, a colony look like for Mars like how how would the you know how many you know mechanics would you need if you only had a hundred people how many mechanics how many doctors how many wow. like chefs all this sort of, you have to design and you have to design a flag and all you know but we spent like the whole summer on this and you had to send all your you had to post your answers you know it was crazy you had to print them out and post them anyway and then you had a workshop through in edinburgh and all this sort of stuff anyway they picked 26 of us and uh i think the reason it was so transformative was because i'm was hanging out with people who were like me like really like me mm. we were all different of course but like we were all we we're all nerds we all were ambitious we'd all worked hard to do this we'd all focused for a summer on something yeah. where, and where was it geographically houston houston yeah mm-hmm. wow so like you know a group of 26 scottish kids 17 years old getting sent you know on the on the taxpayer's dime to stay in a fancy hotel in houston and literally go to nasa and hang out with astronauts i mean it was absolutely insane we got caught in hurricanes that was even more of a we got extended the trip so it was it was was just really uh, i mean like we arrived and like they they just treated us like absolute heroes like you know we arrived and there was like a bagpiper like piped Mm -hmm. us off the plane it was crazy and like they had um we arrived on i don't know the saturday and on the sun it was the weekend and on and they had us um because uh, the program was starting on the monday and they had us play a, f- a football game a soccer game and mm. it was like space school kids versus astronauts and they had us like literally playing a game of football against astronauts wow like for us these 17 year old kids who all like love space obsessed mm. with space some people were proper obsessed with space like proper and here we are, and most of our nerds don't know how to play football, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, But uh, actually, I did play football competitively at that time, so that was quite good. But, you know, <laughs> there's other, we, we did well. But um, although, hilariously, I was reflecting on this recently, and I remembered that they, they said if a girl scores, you get two goals, and if a boy scores, you only get one. Wow. And it, luckily, I, I was the only one, I think, that really knew how to play football because I played with a team when I was younger. Yeah. So we won by quite a good margin because I scored quite a few times. And every time they realized their mistake after I started <laughs> scoring, I think we won like, I don't know, 8-0 or something like that. But obviously it was only four goals. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I was man of the match. They didn't even change it to woman in match. <laughs> Douchebags. Anyway, but no, it was it was transformational. Sexist space camp. The Literally. Expose. Bloody rude. <laughs> it was 2008. It was a different time then. Um, 2008. No, 2008. Yeah, 2008. Oh, it was mental. It was just, I don't know, hanging out with 25 other people in a hotel in Houston, you know, without your parents, because, and 
because you're clever, you know, being right. sent because you're clever. Right. And being clever, like most of us were probably bullied at one point in school for being intelligent. Right. I certainly was. And so to kind of reap the rewards, all these years of being told, you know, it's worth it. All this bullying is this, worth it. This is how evil geniuses are born, I think. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We've recorded it now. I've got no chance. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, um, it was really, it was really transformational. And I still, you know, it's funny. I still, um, I was telling someone this yesterday. I still consider it probably the thing I'm most proud of. You know, when you're interview and you get asked, what are you most proud of? You know, what achievement have you had in your life that you're most proud of? I normally say space school. Wow. And yeah. that's you know, 10 years on. It's not because I've not done anything since then. No, I guess it's, it's just, it sounds know. like an incredible experience. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was earned. I worked really hard for it. And I, you know, I still remember coming home from school with a little leaflet about space school that my physics teacher had given me. And uh -huh. my mum and dad, I remember, I remember them. They were supportive in everything I do and I still are, but they laughed, they laughed. It was the first time that I'd said something that they, they were like, this is, this is mental Gemma. Like you're, this is so hard. You're not going to be able to get clean. Wow. So like, I mean, they were incredibly supportive my mum actually gave me one of the most like important ideas for it she helped me fix a, a thing using gecko tape anyway um but she so she definitely contributed and helped a lot but i remember coming home with the leaflet and they 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 were like oh Gemma, the astronaut look at you ha ha wow. and then you know months later obviously getting i mean the day i got the the message to um to say I got in, I knew that they were going to email and email like we didn't have email at school right you know you went home okay. and checked your computer yeah but uh, they actually sent a letter and I remember mum texting me at school saying, oh, there's a letter for you. And we knew that the letter would have been coming. Wow. There's a letter for you, there's a letter for you. And uh, can, you know, can me and dad open it? Me and dad are at home. Like, can we open it? Do you want us to, or sh shall we wait? And yeah. I said, no, you open it. Cause it was like, I don't know, midday. So it's ages to go home. Yeah. And then I got a text from my dad. You are going, just you, like the letter you are you're going no exclamation point no wow no congrats just you're going i was like wait what that was how i found <laughs> out my dad's text and obviously my mom yeah. i'm assuming my mama said oh you you have the honors of telling her you tell Gemma. you know you tell her i'll i'll not tell her you you get the honors you're going oh my god but anyway typical scottish kind of um what is the word for that kind of reservedness or yeah. downplaying things i think to be honest it's just my dad and technology to be honest he's quite an oh, he... expressive person so is my mom okay i think it's just how he texts to be honest I see. <laughs> no emojis <laughs> no, i don't think there were emojis back then i think you just had smileys you know yeah. using your colon and your yeah but no no people did that back then i think i did, was one of the people who did that those things. yeah no that's true that's true I would have at least put a smiley face at the end. No, but. just just you're going. Yeah. And I actually, I actually remember messaging back being like, because um, the, the people who'd got through went to Houston, but some runners up, um, they did a program in Glasgow at right. Strathclyde University. So like, I guess the runners up. And um, so he said, you're going. And I remember being like to Houston or to Glasgow, like, you know, yeah. Houston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember it really vividly no they were very supportive but they did laugh when i said i wanted to go to space school and and, and how long was it was it at the end in, in houston uh well we ended up being there about i think it was close to about 10 days or two weeks because of the hurricane it was meant mm -hmm. to only be about i don't know eight days nine and days what was the schedule like so what? it was all it was like a week-long thing so we had like workshops and stuff with various different like um either space uh, scientists or astronauts or we had little trips like we went to um we did like a simulation in uh um 
control room, like a mission control room. So you all got different roles. I got mm. to be Capcom, which is totally the best one. Just <laughs> FYI. That's the one that talks to the astronauts. Right. Again, center of attention, I guess. There's a theme here. Anyway, um, <laughs> but one of the most amazing things that we got to do is we we got to go into the original mission control room um, uh-huh. that Apollo 13 had happened in, the real one. It's, it's right. not used anymore. It's now they use it for tours and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, we got to go in it and um we we all sat there and we and we got a talk from um gene and i've totally forgotten his surname now but he was the capcom you know uh, houston we have a problem that that was he was wow. the dude at the other end not the astronaut the um the guy who's on the um on the on the microphone and he came and did a talk for us about what it was so he is there sitting at the front in the actual room where it actually happened and we were all sitting on the seats you know listening to him and he's talking about the experience and what it was like and we ought to ask questions and then they put apollo 13 on the the actual one on the screens in this mcr and we're all just sitting watching it it was just surreal they treated us like absolute gods but a lot of it was like well you know you had to do um build a rover build like a launcher and you know work out all the physics to make sure it worked and you know how to get into a career in space i'm sure there was probably a session or two on that mm-hmm. and in the evenings they always had um different things so like we we went to like a few parties like at astronauts houses and they all like brought instruments it was very american they all brought wow. instruments and like played for us and stuff it was see when i think back to it we were treated so well but then we we were meant to do the um the final rover test on the on the friday um but um uh, the hurricane hit, so we got evacuated. So we didn't get to do a rover test, but um, okay. but that was an experience in and of itself, to be honest. So yeah. you, that was uh, you built a real rover, like robotics. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. Little um, so they gave us all these like robotics kits and stuff. Kind okay. of, I guess probably what would be the the equivalent of like Arduinos and stuff nowadays. Right. But and you programmed it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to with um, Basic or something like that. I couldn't even tell you what it was <laughs> nowadays. It was kits that they gave us. Okay, probably wasn't that. You know complex i'm not sure a lot of what i was doing was more the equations i remember saying doing the equations trying to work because we had to make a little launcher that um you put they give us an egg and you had to find a way of using uh launching this uh, rockets you were just you know one of these pedal rockets thing you know you stand okay. on it shoots up mm-hmm. and you had to um either use that or drop it from a height and you had to find a way of getting the egg to not smash. So you had to create some something that gives a whole right. different material. So some people like wrapped it in essentially like bubble wrap enough, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some people put a parachute on the egg. But you had to put it inside the rocket. So you had to find a way of opening the rocket and it, the egg coming out and the egg landing safely. Needless to say, not one of us managed to make the egg not crack. But that was a good laugh as well. Yeah. But yeah. It was. It was more the kind of. I think it was. I think the purpose of it was more just to put us in awe the whole time. Right. They wanted to inspire the next generation. I think so. Yeah. And most of us, I've got almost everyone still on Facebook, which is kind of cool because, like, every every couple of years, someone will, you know, you get those time hop things. Every couple of years, someone will be like, "Oh, this photo just came up," and they'll tag everyone from the whole trip, and right. we all kind of get to have that sort of nostalgia. Yeah, last uh, in 2017, I remember. I think it was was it me or was it someone else? I can't remember. Someone, it can't be me because I don't remember so clearly. But someone posted. I think it was October 15th. This was the day we got our letters, uh-huh. and tagged everyone. 
Yeah, yeah it's just, it's, I think, and, and seeing everyone's jobs now, I mean, loads of people, I think actually about three or four are all physics researchers. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone is directly in aerospace. Quite a few physics, aerospace researchers, but I don't know what they're specifically doing. A lot of doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are, a few weather people. Makes sense, I guess. Well, I guess doctors also end up as astronauts at some point. Yeah, I guess so. There's a few people, I remember, I remember being like one guy, he had decided he wants to be a doctor and I remember being like, how come you got to come? Like, you know, it should be people who like physics, you know, <laughs> you, you want to go be a doctor. That's, that's not physics. <laughs> yeah. I remember being like really bitter. I was like, there's lots of people who really want to be a physics researcher. I want to be a maths researcher and he, he wants to be a doctor. That's yeah. not why are you at space school <laughs> so ridiculous didn't understand that. the yeah cool well, i mean i knew there was doctors needed i don't know why i was so resentful <laughs> <laughs> maybe because i had felt like he had all worked out and i didn't i don't know <laughs> yeah interesting do you remember at what point you decided to study maths at university well it either would have been the point with the blackboards and and, and watching that program with the them all working out but i think i kind of i mean i know kind of knew it for a while yeah it was. I knew it was going to be maths, physics, or chemistry. I'd known yeah. that since I was quite um, like early on in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when I, when I when I was applying for uni, I applied for both maths and physics. Oh, okay. And I even I actually applied for a joint program as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I d- there was a point where it was either going to be maths, physics, chemistry, or art. I considered going to art school for quite a while. Oh wow. Um, I really wanted to go to Glasgow Art School. Yeah. But I, I decided against that when I d- made my decision to study my hires because I didn't take art that year. Okay. So I would have been 15 or 16. And I remember being like, oh, it'll just be a hobby now. And that's okay. fine. Okay. But it's funny when you talk. Right. A, well, I just think at all these conferences that you always talk about, you know, we can be, you know, creativity. How do you define creativity nowadays? And all these sorts of things. You know, innovation yeah. conferences and you know, I used to be in advertising. So now all these advertising conferences. And I'm like, you know, I remember the point that I had to make that decision. You know, do I do art or do I do science? You right. know? Um, Somebody told me something really interesting yesterday or the day before, which is that in the during the Renaissance, most artists were also scientists. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other way around too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was not really any 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 kind of difference between these two dif- disciplines. Well, I mean, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci was one of the greatest scientists and artists of his that's time. That's right, that's right. But then I suppose every discipline is pretty interwoven back then. I mean, yeah. even being a scientist, I mean, you were a biologist, a chemist, a mathematician, a physicist. I mean, you were everything just in that one word. Right, um, a natural scientist probably. Right, and yeah, exactly. Otherwise you were a theo- theologian. Well, you probably were that too, you know? I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. Now, nowadays we're so, although I mean, I th- I'm in a very fortunate position now that I feel like I do. I mean, that's one of the beauties of freelancing as I feel like you kind of get to use all the different parts of you in some way mm. in different projects, or at least that's how I, I approach my freelancing. Mm. What was the job that you got uh, straight out of university? So I did an investment banking internship and the idea was that you did the internship and then you would go back and finish a year of uni and then go straight into the grad scheme okay. um, so that was my plan but yeah. I hated it when mm-hmm. I did the internship so I went back to uni like what the hell am I doing and I googled creative business jobs London because that was the point I decided actually I should have studied art oh no <laughs> yeah and so I, I, I googled creative business jobs London advertising popped up 
I did loads of research and decided I wanted to be an account manager. Yep. And uh, so I applied for all the agencies and I got a job um, at Ogilvy on their internship. It's called the fellowship. So you essentially do that for two months and then you get offered a job if they like you at the end. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was, as I say, graduated on the, the Friday. I started the Ogilvy internship on the, on the Monday. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did you get an I didn't. No. I bloody didn't. The bastards. Fuck them. <laughs> so resentful. <laughs> no, I did I did a really good job and they reassured me I did a good job because basically I got um so you found out a few days after they finished that, you know, whether or not you got so there was twelve of us at the fellowship and five got a job. Yeah. So I got a call saying I hadn't got in. And I was so upset I flew to Scotland that day. I just I just bought a ticket. I was like Fuck this, what's the point in being in London? I had a job at Savoy, I worked nights at Savoy and during a day at the internship at Ogilvy because it wasn't paid very well. Um, mm. And I had, uh, <laughs> I decided to run down the escalator when I was drunk one of the nights and I'd uh, buggered my ankle. So I wasn't working at Savoy, I didn't have any shifts. Um, so I just I was like, I'm going to Scotland, I'm so angry. Because I knew I'd done a really good job, like the best job I'd done in anything. And I, I knew I deserved a place. Wow. Anyway, went to Scotland. I got a phone call the next day in Scotland saying, oh, we want to offer you a job. We just don't want to put you on the grad scheme. We want, like, want to give you a job as accountant, like go straight into being an accountant exec. Wow. Well, I mean, it, some, some, in some ways you could look at it as wow, or you could look at it as, I mean, we were all doing the exact same job. So, it, it, and I got paid less because oh. I wasn't an official fellow, oh. um, which I'm also resentful for, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the sort of, it was a rotational internship and the final rotation I'm on, the person I worked for hired me directly into his team. Um, so I'd clearly done a good job, but right. I'm still resentful of the fact that they kind of rejected me and then phoned me. That they could have said on the phone. Do you, do you think there was something sexist about it? That, no, 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 no. The person who fought, phoned me was, um, but, was female. And advertising is very female-led. Uh-huh, okay. And so there was, out of those, uh, it wasn't like... 12 six women six guys and then no, four guys and one woman no it was three three girls uh, three boys two girls got in and the fellowship was six and six so it was it was very kind of very equal you're always gonna okay. have an imbalance because it's five um oh no i don't sure. think it's anything to do with sexism at all i think it was i just asked because uh you end up being paid less which is oh that's because so basically yeah. the the, the ogilvy fellowship is like the ogilvy fellowship you know it's very well regarded by the industry and all that jazz okay and um so it's better paid in comparison to other entry level jobs in advertising. So you yeah. you know when I joined it was you know you got 20k as a fellow and you got 18k as an account exec right. which by the way is terrible for London but hey ho. Yeah. Um but then I think the thing that was so I found very frustrating is I my boss who led the fellowship but also hired me in. So he had this real conflict because he managed the fellows like he managed that program but then he hired me and I'm like Okay, hold on a wee second. You get to make a decision as to who the best people are right. and hire them as fellows, and you've chosen the one of the people you've rejected to actually work for you. That's Makes ironic, no isn't it? Yeah. You know, and you're going to pay them less. Okay, whatever. So that's fine. Well, anyway. you, that's really interesting. It sounds to me like maybe there was some internal politics, and they didn't. Oh, they didn't like me because I was. <laughs> I said that the fellowship was crap, so I think there was a lot of that. To be honest, they like the first rotation yeah. I got. It didn't give me any work, so I spent the whole time being like, "This is boring. This is boring. This is boring. This is boring." Because I'd spent the last year in JP Morgan working like 19 hours a day. Yeah. So and then I was like, you know, I had to go like one of my jobs I got was go around London and buy us creative magazines. Here's some money. That's your job for the whole day. That was my job for an entire day. I mean, like, it was easy, and but it was so boring. And, like, you know, they would, oh, here, do a competitive analysis on the crisps market. All right, fine. And I'd go do it, and I'd finish it in, like, a day or two. Because I was used to, I mean, 
I was insanely good at PowerPoint because I'd spent my entire summer at an investment bank. Right. Anyone who's done that knows that you become an absolute wizard at like PowerPoint and Excel. So I did it like real quick and like made a really big report and I worked like in the evenings on it because again, I was used to it, all that jazz. And I gave it to him. They were like, oh, this was meant to be your job for like the next two weeks. And I was like, well, I finished it. So can you give me more work? And they didn't give me more work. So I basically wow. just kept complaining about so it. So basically they... <laughs> You, you you worked too hard. You went too well, good. I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't want to I don't want to like you know there might have been other reasons, but the the feedback I got they didn't give me any feedback like yeah. that actually suggested I was bad at the job. Yeah, I don't buy it. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever. It was they, they just they, <laughs> those, 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 those they were they, they were God scared. They were scared that you were going for their jobs that no, you were gunning. No, no. I think I was. I mean, I was outspoken, and you know, I a lot of the a lot of things with graduate schemes like you have to be the sort of person that just does the job right and right like, what you're told this is uh the the whole point of the education complex is we want yes, obedient yes, workers and yes. you were not obedient enough you you did things too quickly this is this you whole did. stupid stuff about like oh we need to hire purple squirrels and then you like you know these like crazy people that are really right, amazing and then right. you and then you, they get hired and then no one knows how what to do with them they're like right. how do i manage they're you purple and yeah, they're squirrels, and they're squirrels. <laughs> like they, all they want to do is gather nuts like i don't know what to do with these guys and then you're like wait what we really need is someone to climb up trees yes exactly <laughs> and, exactly yeah. and it's it's it just i think i remember at one point i got so angry because i worked in as a, an account person for like a year and a half and then i moved i moved into the corporate innovation team after and i remember at one point i got a new man so this first manager i loved him he was he was great even though <laughs> all the rejecting me for fellowship stuff he was he was amazing i learned so and i worked directly for him and he's very senior so i didn't I essentially got to miss a whole lot of levels by working directly mm -hmm. with him. So he, it was an amazing experience. And, um, but I remember I then got a new manager. He left and the new manager came in and obviously he didn't know all this history about the fellowship and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'm, I'm still bitter. So I was clearly still bitter then. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I remember at one point, you know, the, the minute he came in, I was very quickly into meeting going, excuse me, hi, I need a promotion. I also need a pay rise. I'm doing really well. Here's my record. I've got it written down by many managers. I'm doing really well. Here's all my feedback. Please can it, you make it one of your priorities to, to quickly help? Because I was on a path to being promoted and now my manager is gone so please can you help me with this i will do whatever it takes give me you know goals i'll hit them and so obviously he's brand new so he didn't know how good i was or whatever so he was like okay here are your goals you know i need you to show me that you can do x y and z and i was so frustrated because i was like i've already shown that i can do this i already have got proof of this but anyway i went away did all this stuff went in and a lot of it was really subjective you know prove you can manage a project i was like i've managed many projects what are you on about anyway so i gave him all this like evidence and la 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 And then he was like, oh, you know, the usual stuff when you're trying to get a promotion. Oh, you know, well, actually, we need you to do this, this, this. And this went on like many times. And eventually he said to me, I just need you to be more like Henry. And this is one of the guys that worked on the accounts. And Henry, lovely guy, but a talker, not a doer. Like very suave with clients. Very good at dealing with, you know, it's a client facing role. And be very good with clients. Everyone loved him. He was crap at being an account person in the sense of managing anything but brilliant yeah. with clients yeah and i said this to my to my boss i was like i'm really good with clients i'm not like henry i'm not charismatic and suave in the way he is i'm not a charmer yeah but i'm good with clients and i get my work I get way and way more productive than him way more productive yeah um and he was like yeah but at the end of the day you know that's kind of what we need And I was like, first of all, women can't be suave and charming. That's not really a thing. Like he was a, he was a charmer like a man can be a charmer. But also 
that for me was like the final straw. I was like, I've hit all my targets. I've done all this. And like, you want me to just be suave. Like mm. anyone can be suave, but not everyone can manage multiple projects and like hit targets over and over and over again. Uh, so not long after that, I said I was going to be leaving. And luckily I got moved within the company to the most incredible job that I will forever be grateful for and mm. the most amazing manager and it's the reason I'm now able to do all the stuff I'm doing now. So it's all, it was a good thing, but yeah. it was a, a year and a half of like, it was a great experience, but it was a lot of like banging my head off a table. This sort of like, just no one knew what to do with me. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with me. And I didn't know I was being annoying. You know, the client would say, let's do this thing. And I would say immediately, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> it's like this entry level person. And there's like, you know, the managing partners, they're trying to sell the client this. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Surely it's better to get your, cons you know, your consultant. Why is EY not doing that? You're working with EY. There's no point, you know, why are you getting me to do financial modeling on your advertising spend? I mean, I can do it. I worked at JP Morgan, fine. But like, that's not what an advertising agency should be doing. Like, you know, and I'd be saying this and, and you could see them eyeing me. And obviously the clients... They're like, were, you're turning our customers away. No, they want to like, pay us. But then I was like, I was like, the only reason they're asking us to do it is because they're underpaying us, right? Like, right, I was like... Because they, like, they pay the consultants way more. more. And right. I was like, you know, I, I'm on an 18 grand a year salary. Yeah, I'm My not doing is not consulting work for I'm that. I'm not doing right. that. Yeah. And I was like, you're just taking advantage of the fact that I used to work at JP Morgan. Like, sure. bugger off. If you want to do that, hire me as a consultant. I'll do it separately. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because you're always pricing projects, like I don't know how how product managers on like huge projects do it because you're pricing projects at like, you know, so like, I remember one project that we had to like write a report and the price was like £19,000 for the whole project. And I had two months to do this project yeah. and I was getting paid £18,000 as my annual salary. Right. And I was like, this makes no, and I had someone obviously signing off the work, but, but I was on. doing but that, it. But, but, but surely like, JP Morgan and well, all the consulting agencies do the same thing. They will hire out at you know. Oh yeah. Oh no, everyone does this. Plus. But uh, actually, I have a question about this. Go, I'm, go, go. I'm very curious. Go. Why do you think? Do you think that advertising agencies deliver less value than consulting firms, or mm. why do they get paid so much less? Very good question. Um, not to sit on the fence, but it depends, right? I think it depends on the team. It depends on the client. It depends on the project. All that sort of thing. I think that advertising agencies can deliver a lot of value. Yeah on certain kinds of projects. And I think that consultancies can offer great, even better value on some very certain kind of, particular kind of projects. Right. I think that if there's some things that advertising agencies do really badly, yeah. and I can understand why people would prefer to use a consultancy, especially when so many consultancies are now making these brand uh, divisions that essentially do the work of an advertising agency anyway. So right. you, can, you can easily see why a P&G would just want to use the same company to to do their branding strategy if they're already doing their tax strategy or whatever else like yeah. I, I can get that but then equally i think a lot of consultancies are bollocks and that you know a lot it's just yeah. moving money around and there isn't you know if you think about the type of people if you know grad schemes in consultancies like they're not fostering creativity they're not in, you know right. most of them not all of them well, but most what, of them yeah i think that's where my question comes from because uh I've come to the conclusion that actually the creative work is the hardest stuff. So why the fuck do we pay? Well, the, yeah, the I think number so crunches not, so much money. Well, because like it's not value. Well, okay, it's not measurable. I, it's really hard to measure yeah, creativity. I understand. I, I, my my tendency to is to believe that this is more or less market forces. That there's far more people mm. who want to work in advertising and in design, and there's far less people who want to do 19-hour days working at McKinsey and well, BCG. 
that true in terms of the workforce, but in yeah. terms of the the B two B, I mean that's kind of different, right? Like you know, yes, and I I understand why I was paid less than an advertising AG. Makes yeah. total sense. You know, if I left, they get someone in off the street pretty easily. Like yeah. completely but understand that, that. Doesn't that directly correlate then with? the pricing that the agency offers the client because well, if they didn't if they didn't offer low prices i mean maybe someone with a brand like bilby could hike their prices but there's always a hundred other agencies that will mm, undercut them on price and, mm. and take contracts away from them well especially because I, i guess advertising agencies do very competitive bidding processes maybe that's they why do. I mean, I, yeah the pitching process is crazy that's funny because i don't think consulting firms do that they don't uh, no, you compete do tenders, with really but that's that's kind of it and it's you know it's a report or something right i mean with whereas with i mean you'd go to sessions about how to do what did they call it pitch oh, there's a phrase for it pitch magic pitch theater something like that wow, yeah. and it's all around um how you kind of do this added extra to make the pitch. It's not just about what you say in the presentation, it's the whole experience. So I remember at one point, one example they gave us at Ogilvy was um, they were pitching for, I don't know, some rail company, like a train company. I don't mm. know if the Ogilvy did this or something. I, I remember just seeing it in a training thing once. And uh, anyway, this company was pitching for a train company. So they had, you know, they come for the final pitch and the train after, you know, you're doing all these multiple rounds of pitching, right? But this final one where they came for the big presentation, the train company marketing execs arrive at the agency and they walk into the reception. There's no one at the reception. There's leaves all over the floor, litter in places, you know, all this sort of thing. And they walk through and the kind of, the whole sort of agency is a bit empty. It's really cold in the agency, blah, blah, blah. And they arrive in, they get into the room, they sort of sit down and they're kind of a bit frosty. Mm. And they open the pitch and said, how do you feel? And they were, you know, they kind of didn't say, oh, your office is a bit unwelcoming or anything like that. But they were just like, yeah, no, no. And they said, that's how all of your customers feel every day when they come to the train station. Wow. And okay advertising wank right but <laughs> incredible right this is the, this is what they have to do they don't get paid for this stuff right you right. agency spend so much money on pitching right. you know all the time of you know they have to come up with the ideas before they get paid for it you know you yeah. essentially have to deliver the pro and then yeah. all this pitch theater to kind of make it you know exactly things like that you know there's so much done around like you know like at one point um i think ogilvy was pitching for baxter's it's like a pet food company mm -hmm. and they made um Like they made a pet, like uh, edible biscuits, but in the shape of pet food. You know, you get the little sort of bones for dogs, right. you know, yeah. but they were edible and they had... Right, edible for humans. Yes, for, sorry, edible for humans. Yes, <laughs> I was like, exactly. they're always edible. They're always edible. Um, <laughs> for a dog. Yeah. Well, it depends. Yeah, <laughs> it depends which company you buy from. Anyway, um, but um, yeah, and they, and they like had them made sort of specifically for this pitch. And so there's like the new business team that's like their job is to like, source the most random stuff for pitches like right. you know specifically made biscuits that are made to look like Bast baxter's biscuits but you know you <laughs> humans can eat them or something yeah. i don't know they always had weird deliveries coming into ogilvy for yeah, all yeah. these pitches and That's funny. they spend so much money and, and when they win them i mean it's such a huge deal when you win right. a pitch and um i mean it's understandable it's a lot of money right And it's also it's a huge deal when they lose a they lose a client. I mean, I remember when we Ogilvy One was who I was working for when they, and they lost BA, and that was kind of wow. a huge, huge turning point because Ogilvy One was essentially like winning every award it could find yeah. uh, for a few years. It was like the top agency in uh, uh, direct marketing. 
yeah. or in digital. And it was essentially at that point, what I can understand, holding the rest of Ogilvy UK up because there was like 10 companies under the Ogilvy UK banner. And at the time, Ogilvy One was one making all the money. Wow. And a lot of the reason was BA. They had done these incredible campaigns for BA. They were winning all the Can Lie and they were winning all the DNAD, whatever, all the different awards, all for actually just as one project for BA, this outdoor project. It yeah. was on the Piccadilly Circus, you know, the um, the big uh, billboard at Piccadilly Circus. It's kind of like Times Square, you know, the, the the famous ones. It's like that, but in London. It's a big, right. big uh, horizontal screens. screen. Exactly, right. billboard. Screens. That's right. Yeah. And it's above, it's normally got Coca-Cola on it. It's really famous in, in the center of London. Yeah. And they did this thing where they essentially, um, they uh, tapped into the radio antenna on the top of the billboard. And every time a plane flew over Piccadilly Circus, the screen would switch on and they had a little boy walk across, a little toddler walk across the screen pointing, looking up at the sky at the plane that was in the real sky, flying over Piccadilly Circus and just look up. And then he would just walk across the screen pointing at the plane and then it would just come off and it just said, the magic of flying, BA. Wow. And it was incredible. You know, you had all these people in Piccadilly Circus, like, oh, there's an actual plane and the, guy, the boy's pointing at, you know. Yeah. Anyway, they won like every award. It was like the first connected billboard using technology for advertising. Sure. You know, yeah. they won every award. Anyway, when they lost BA, we got an all agency email and we had talk with us. We all knew that they were, basically they had uh, Ogilvy for their uh, direct and digital. And then they had, I think it was BMB for uh, above the line. Mm-hmm. We did above the line. And we all knew they were pitching. It was a huge deal. Everyone kept getting pulled off projects for the BA pitch. Like it went on for months and months and months, like over and over, all these different rounds. And it was, just, it was quite stressful, really. Yeah. And we got pulled down for this all agency meeting, like the whole of Ogilvy won. I, I didn't have anything to do with the pitch. And I was also really junior. And we all thought we'd won. Why would they pull an all agency meeting? Why would they make us all stand a room, 100, 100 and 200 of us, however many there was. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told us we've, we've lost BA. And it was like someone had died. Like, yeah. it was so somber. And it was, we're going to get through this. And but he said, everyone's all looking at it. We knew that there was going to be loads of redundancies. And that was the start of the redundancies. That was 2013. And I, I was made redundant from Ogilvy in the end. So it was the start of redundancies for quite a long time. They'd, and the, the, the press, the agency, the, the advertising press didn't, you know, I guess when a company's doing really well and then something bad happens, they like to attack it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever, I don't know all the history with Ogilvy, but it was all, you know, they still talk about the fact that Ogilvy lost BA. Actually, Ogilvy have got BA back now, but anyway, not to defend <laughs> them because I'm bitter in many ways about Ogilvy, but, um, but yeah, they, um, it was it was a big deal and it yeah. was they didn't win another kind of, they were winning like campaign agency of the year every year and uh, then they kept applying for it each year and they always the, the the reasoning for not winning was always but they lost BA but what? they lost BA mm-hmm. yeah yeah wow. for a few years after it so it was a big yeah agencies are funny the yeah, advertising industry a is a funny very strange world it's an amazing place I'm yeah. so glad I had a bit of time in there but I also it's also a I've got a lot of like negative feelings about the industry so for the obvious yeah. reasons that everyone doesn't like advertising but I think also yeah. There's a lot of like personalities that are attracted to advertising. I'm yeah. not sure it's always the best. Attention seekers, mm-hmm. like Gemma, like me. <laughs> I'm an advertising people. I'm I, a creative and a technologist <laughs> and a client person <laughs> and a finance person, and I work in this desirable industry that everyone wants to work in. I have a theory about how to solve the negative externalities that advertising has on our society, mm-hmm. and it's very simple. Mm-hmm. We tax advertising somehow, and 
I, I, I've been thinking about this recently, actually, because you might have difficulty taxing um, advertising directly because you don't want to tax like the spend because you might mm -hmm. have low spend stuff that actually is worse for people. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking maybe you somehow audit attention and you tax attention. Audit so, attention and tax. So, attention. for example, we 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 as a society we pay attention to to where does human attention go? Okay. And where it's being commercialized. Um, that is to say, like so, where, you could tax clicks essentially. Yeah, is that what you but mean? but more more even more deeply, like if we know that, for example, on average we all spend one hour a day on Facebook, then one oh. hour then Facebook has to pay a tax on that. Oh, interesting. Okay, so actually on okay, and the idea of attention being a commodity. Yeah, well, it's uh, well, attention is a commodity, but mm. we, we, I think the negative externality of our attention being so you would only tax those uh, organizations that are turning it that are selling that go, then turn around and sell the attention like facebook does but if the, if you don't if there's an app like whatsapp that doesn't sell your attention then you don't tax that because that that's attention that we spend willingly on the app because we get a service out of it but how would you how would you so like because there's lots of companies that take your attention and make money off it but yeah. aren't average so like for instance um I don't know if you read the book. What's this book called? It's called um, The World Beyond Your Head. Um, I can't remember who it's by. But I've only read the first chapter because it's so... Every, it's one of these books, every sentence is like really hard to read because okay. it's got so yeah. much in it, but it's amazing. Anyway, yeah. first chapter is, is about... Um, I thought it would be a self-help book, but it turns out it's more about <laughs> attention. Okay. Um, but anyway, th um, he was talking about um, this like, yeah, commoditization of attention. And he was talking about how airports are a perfect example because you pay to not have your attention utilized if that makes sense so like paying for an airport lounge you're like paying for silence you're paying to not be sold at right if that makes sense yeah. so that is you having to pay to get for your it. for your attention to not be used right. so how do you that's which is what a lot of the you know kind of freemium models do mm. like um oh, like spotify yeah, but but then all yeah, th that's a very good example. But I think also all the newspapers now that have their yeah, website plastered with yes, yes. Yeah. So anyway, I, I haven't thought this fully through. But then through. the thing is, is like because you're almost having to change two models though. You're going to have to get people to stop, pay, like because you're paying to not have your attention used, and then you'd right. also have to then almost go another step by then taxing. Do you see what I mean? It's like a two way. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I have. This is. Uh, I like it. I like yeah. where we're going, but I'm. I need to think about it. I have uh, one final question. I think then we're going to wrap, wrap it up. Yeah, we must have been talking for a long time. All the lights in the hotel have gone off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've we've passed midnight. Oh God. Um, <laughs> but um, my question is: How did you go from working in you were working in the corporate innovation team at Ogilvy when mm -hmm. you were made redundant there? Mm -hmm. How did you go from that to becoming? Uh, well, I am now. <laughs> journalist, actually. Is, is that how you describe yourself? A, a um, science journalist? Uh, a science writer. I prefer a writer okay. than journalist. Um, I don't break news as such. Yeah. Um, I don't investigate as such. But anyway. Um, but you do, um, actually, I, I don't know exactly what you do, but do you do long-form articles about science? Yeah, I do features mainly. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I do some news, mainly features. I, don't, I have a beat, but I don't... You know, I don't know. I, I kind of think of journalism as like a full-time pursuit where you're uncovering stories and you're right. the kind of, maybe I'm just overthinking the word, but I would rather call myself a writer. I feel like I'm being fake if I call myself a journalist. How did I go from there? I got made redundant and they gave me a measly 
statutory payout and I knew it would do me for about six weeks. And so I was fully, I was intending on getting another corporate job at the time. I was actually interviewing with DeepMind. <laughs> Funny, fun fact. They told me I didn't get a job because I was too extroverted. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> fuck you guys. Um, anyway, and um, so I... Um, we have to be careful that you don't come off as being like too, too bitter. I'm bitter. Kind of so bitter. Uh, I'm actually not that bitter person. You're not like person. that at all. I know. <laughs> I'm so bitter at all. Please don't judge me. It's, um, it's, it's your radio character, I think. My radio character. I know. Gosh, it's like having a phone voice, a podcast voice. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I was, um, so I was, I was trying essentially to buy myself time so that I could find another corporate job because I figured six weeks might not be enough, A, to find a job interviewologist but also i did, really didn't know what i wanted to do yeah. um, I, I knew i didn't want to go back into an advertising agency i was, I was kind of disillusioned by corporate innovation all that sort of thing yeah. so i was just looking for some random contracts that could kind of tick me over and luckily ogilvy shutting his innovation team again the industry press they they seem to kind of be quite harsh in ogilvy anyway when they found out they shut the innovation team it was a quite a big story and they made a real big deal of it which was um very good for me because part of my job had been doing loads of public speaking so kind of everyone knew that i was like Gemma from the ogilvy innovation team so when they found All out right. they'd shut the innovation team they were like oh god Gemma, you've lost your job you know so i got offered quite a lot of um like innovation consulting freelancing contracts from various different agencies kind of just oh can you come do a bit of scouting or can you like advise on this one you know client or whatever so i was doing a little bit of that but i really hated it and then um i basically there's a part of Ogilvy called Ogilvy Do, which is like a thought leadership platform based in Singapore and New York. And I already knew those guys from when I was what, in... What does that mean, thought leadership platform? They they write articles about innovation, advertising, tech, anything at all. Like ghostwriting it for people who want to be thought leaders? Or? Oh, no, no, no. Like it's, it's like thought leadership on behalf of Ogilvy. Oh, I see. So it's like the company yeah. blog, essentially, but a lot more. They have an editor and it's kind sure. of, yeah. you know, a, a bit more formal. So it's like the Ogilvy magazine. Kind of. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I'd kind of come across them through because I'd wrote some guest articles for them when I was in labs because they obviously always wanted articles about like tech and stuff. So that's why I did. Anyway, yeah. so afterwards, they, uh, you know, they'd got in touch and be like, what the F? I can't believe they've made you redundant. What are they doing? Absolute idiots. And I was like, can I write some articles for you, please? So I can make some money. And I yeah. knew one of my really good friends, Phil, he freelances for them. And uh -huh. I'd asked him in the past how much he got paid per article and like how it worked. So I already knew like what the rates were and all that sort of thing. Right. So I said, you know, I already have a ticket to Can Lion. I already have a ticket to these different conferences. Can I, can I write for you? Like while I'm there yeah. and cover it for you. And they said, yes. And I'd actually, you know, Can Lion, I was still at labs when I did that, but I wrote for them while I was there. That was it. So then they knew I was good anyway. So, um, I had tickets to conferences that Ogilvy had already bought for me when yeah. I was still there. Um, so I went, you know, they had already booked the flights and all that jazz. And I covered for Ogilvy Do. Yeah. And I just really liked it. And I was like, oh, someone will pay me for my words. This is interesting. And, um, you know, I got made redundant uh, in the end of July. And it Which really... Which year was this? 2016. 2016, okay. Um, and then... I kind of was doing all these random odd jobs. I did a bit of work for charity for a little while doing like um, working on kids science um, like uh, weeks, you know, like in the, the summer holidays. And I was going as like a mentor and stuff. I did lots of different random things, any kind of work, basically just because I couldn't find a job that I wanted. And then I got kind of stressed out in like the November because I was too busy. And I kind of realized, oh, it's because I'm spending all this time still trying to look for a job and do all this freelance work that I've been given. Mm -hmm. So I just stopped looking for a job. And uh, was like, oh, now I have time. This is great. 
and I did that whole thing of, oh, I'll do it for another six months. Oh, I'll mm-hmm. do it for another six months. And, uh, well, it's been, it's been two, over two years now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I kind of just, I've, I've over time got more and more interested in doing the writing. You know, I, I, I again, I keep coming back to the center attention thing. I don't actually think I'm that much of an attention seeker anyway, but I, I, I love, I think I've got interesting stuff in my head and I like to get it out of my head. And yeah. I love public speaking for that reason. I love, love, love doing any kind of public speaking. I find it easy and I just get such a buzz. But I can't speak on everything all the time. So writing is like the most efficient way, I guess, of getting it out of my head. I actually find the process of writing quite hard. I get like yeah. writer's block a lot. Yeah. But I love when I manage to frame something the way I want it to come out. Yeah. And I get a lot of joy out of that. Um, so yeah, I just, I guess it must've been about end of last year, 2017, that I was like, actually, I'm going to really try and, you know, be a writer as opposed to being a random freelancer that does some writing, does some consulting, does some speaking, does some investment stuff, whatever. Um, and then I just really went big on like, right, let's try and get a piece in the BBC. Let's try and get a piece in, you know, I'm I'm now a Forbes contributor. Let's, you know, try and get, check off some of the names. Let's, you know, try and write more intelligent pieces. Let's write pieces about stuff that I actually really want to write about as opposed to kind of getting commissioned for stuff that doesn't really make sense in the sort of broader context and kind of having to zoom in on that kind of, I guess, personal brand or whatever. And the start of this year, I, I was actually trying to get a different agent for, um, for my uh, public speaking and uh, I must have known I wanted to write a book because I chose an agent that was actually more of a literary agent but they had like a broadcast arm so I really wanted to get into okay. broadcast yeah. and uh, so I, I emailed them off you know out of the blue they said on their website they were looking for new talent for broadcast so I emailed them and said hello I do all this public speaking I've done these videos la 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 you know are you interested in email the next day said yeah come in for a meeting and kind of over a month or two we had a lot of meetings and eventually they said they would take me on as you know as my sort of public speaking agent um and then when i went in for my final day to like sign the paper they'd emailed me a a few days before or whatever saying do you have any ideas for books and uh basically they said you know do you have any ideas for these books can you you know write out a little pitch for something if you do have any idea and i sent over one they were like no that's rubbish (laughs) and then i sent another one and they said uh okay we're going to talk about it in your meeting when you come in for your, you know, we've got an agent, uh, a literary agent. And I was thinking, oh, they're just going to do that thing of like, oh, this is how we write a book and this is what our business model is and la la la. But anyway, I went and signed my papers to like become a, you know, they're my agent for public speaking. And then they're like, okay, um, Laura's over through next door, go and, go and chat to her. And uh, I went through and she asked me about my idea for my book. And I I mean, I'm not, it wasn't my book. It was just an idea I had. And I was like, and like halfway through or like we've been talking for like an hour and then she said, oh, you know, if you if you're up for it, I'd really like to represent you for this. And I was like, all right, OK, I didn't know, I didn't know a clue that man. I didn't know right. what having a literary agent meant or anything. I just was like, all right, cool. Yeah. And then I like went outside and Googled it and I was like, oh, crap, I've managed, just managed to get a literary agent. What? Like, <laughs> that came out of nowhere. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. And uh, now it's been a sort of seven month process of pulling together the proposal. And she's out right now trying to sell it to publishers. So, wow. So yeah, now I'm a bit wedded to trying to write a book. Great. So it's been a bit of a random journey, I guess. Yeah. Wow. So tell us what's your book about. So I want to write about... um, Oh, you you mentioned it at the beginning, actually. Now, I remember. And you told me about it before, actually. It's about the hype of uh, science and technology and startups. That's right. And uh, being a little bit skeptical of it, but not trying to kind of poo-poo it and say that it's all bad. It's not not about... I, I think when it... When we think about like what I think 
you always get asked, what, what, does, what do we need to make science education better? Yeah. And a lot of people say, oh, we need to make it more interesting. We need to make science sexy. We need to make people realize, you know, how is science used in the real world? And, blah, blah, blah. and I, don't, I, I think that's part of it. But the other half, this was something that a friend of um, my boyfriend said, is that you also need this other half of science communication, which is critical thinking. You need to teach people how to think, essentially, or how to yeah. ask questions, rather. Yeah. Or not even teach them how to ask questions. Empower them to feel like it's okay yeah. to ask questions. I think it's probably the best way to put it. That's one side of it. And the other side of it is essentially spending all this time at startup conferences over the past couple of years. A lot of it is just absolute crap. And yeah. and, and you get you get to the point where you're like, you're just saying that because you want investment. You're just putting blockchain in your deck because you know you've got a higher chance of getting right. money as a result. Or do, all do, these do you think that my impression is that investors see, see the same pattern that you see over mm -hmm. time? They've been exposed to so many pitches and they start to see this pattern of what's mm -hmm. real and what's fake. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I writing mean, the I, book not for investors, though. The book is more, I think yeah, it's, I'm, it's I'm more in, for the real world. If that makes sense. Sure. What does that mean? The the readers who read about it yeah. and uh, get confused about yeah. what's what's like, real. The sort of people that will see something on futurism dot com, or they'll see Elon Musk tweet something, or they'll yeah. you know, oh I saw the you know it's the sort of people that you know when you say to someone, oh I work in tech, and they go, oh, are robots going to steal our jobs? Right. And right. and they're you know I'm really glad that people ask that question. I think that's awesome. People engaging, but then I'm like, damn, I really wish that you had been given a different narrative or that you felt able and you know some people say oh science is so hard i know enough about science you're so clever you do science la, la, la. it's like no like science is not on its own there's a whole world around it you can't just look at the invention you have to look at society you have to look at supply chain you have to look at politics you have to look at education everything around it and then put it in context and then ask questions about whether think it's right or wrong let's not talk about designer babies and be like oh it's not natural let's talk about well what does that mean if someone is born without something that you have like what if someone is born with not enough muscles and we can do something to give them enough muscles how do we feel about that versus giving someone extra muscles to make them superhuman is it worth it to have the superhuman so that you can have it for someone else and then what does it mean in terms of can we afford to do that what does it mean for a national health service what does it mean if we're in the uk of course um well, you know what does it mean for uh politics who's campaigning for what what does it mean for the delivery of drugs does that change where we get source our materials that suddenly the ivory coast gonna get a huge order for something that they can't you know do and is that gonna put a country into some kind of i don't know political disaster right how can you think about things from a different perspective as opposed to just getting the sci-fi-esque elon musk thinks the world's gonna end if ai gets better thing you know like i just i think science is way more compelling if you think about it in its sort of entirety as opposed to you don't need to know the nitty-gritty of the thing you know you can have an opinion on a piece of music without knowing to play an instrument why can't you have an opinion on science without knowing quantum theory and and i just i think it's not enough people have enough information to critically question science and question tech and i think the decisions are being made by only those who feel comfortable enough to talk about it and to know about it and more people needs to be able to know about it in order for the world to be a better place that's kind of, you know to be really sort of i want to change the world going back to what we said at the start <laughs> you know i hate people say they want to change the world but if i want to change the world it's that i want more people to be able to try and think like i do and it's not because i'm clever i mean i, I know i am clever but so is everyone else right i think i have this complete naive optimism that allows me to be like i can learn about that i can have an opinion on that i can work that out and so should everyone else, right? And I don't know.
I guess I kind of want to make that little handbook or a little, or if nothing else, people who just think that their job is going to be stolen by a robot. Let's read a book about that and find out that maybe that's not the case. I don't know. So yeah. you've uh, answered the own question that you posed at the beginning. If you want to change the world, tell me how. And uh, you've told us how. Yeah, So that's how. Thank you for being on my podcast. And can you tell uh, our listeners where they can find you online? Um, uh, sure. Um, well, I'm at Gemma Milne on Twitter. G-E-M-M-A-M-I-L-N-E. Because no one knows how to say my name. Mm -hmm. um, on Twitter, I'm, uh, I think I'm at GKMilne1 on Instagram. GemmaMilne.co.uk is my website. There's a form on there if you want to email me. Twitter is probably best, though. Okay. Fantastic. So thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Today's quote is from Jamie Zepper. There is a difference between arrival and entrance. Arrival is physical and happens all at once. The train pulls in. The plane touches down. You get out of the taxi with all your luggage. You can arrive to a place and never really enter it. You get there, look around, take a few pictures, make a few notes, send postcards home. When you travel like this, you think you know where you are, but in fact, you've never left home. Entering takes longer. You cross over, slowly, in bits and pieces. It is like awakening over a period of weeks. And then, one morning, you open your eyes and you are finally here. Really and truly here, you are just beginning to know where you are. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this conversation. Please share this podcast with other people who might enjoy it. Make sure to also leave a review in your podcast app if you can. That helps other people find great content. I don't run ads on this podcast, but there are two ways that you can support the show and keep it going. The first is by contributing directly to the production cost on Patreon. Statistically, very few people support podcasts directly, which is why most shows resort to running ads. If you want to make sure media is made for you and not to please advertisers, then I suggest you pay for media that you consume And statistically, out of every 10,000 listeners, 200 might support me directly. If these 200 put in $20 a month each, this will become a professional podcast and will continue indefinitely. If you would like to be one of these 200 people, go to patreon.com slash Josh Levent. The second way to support me is to make use of my professional services. I am a leadership and life coach. If you would benefit from some constructive conversations about your life and work, go to joshlevent.com slash coaching to find out more about my coaching services. Mm -hmm.